You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 67, The Psychology of Soundtracks. Today on Minding the Brain, we'd like to welcome Hollywood composer Joe Kramer as our guest. He's responsible for the music and films such as The Way of the Gun, Jack Reacher, and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. He has worked as a composer for more than two decades, and his work in music and sound design has spanned multiple mediums from film to television and audio dramas. We are excited to have Joe with us today to discuss the psychology of soundtracks. Enjoy. So, Joe, you uh, have had a lot of experience making music to accompany film. Do you have a particular approach or a philosophy to uh, how you do this? Yeah. um, I would say, for me... There's two things I look for in a film. One is the audience's way into the movie when you're looking at the film as a whole. And then obviously when you break it down into the pieces of music you need to write, each piece of music, I look for the audience's way into that scene or that moment. And that's from the point of view of filmmaking. And then from a musical point of view, there's concerns about tempo and which scale I use or mode. Mode is essentially another another word for scale. And those two things and uh, are the those two categories are the contain the factors I balance when I start writing a piece of music for a movie. So in the case of say a Mission Impossible film, you know Tom Cruise's character is a in terms of the whole film, he's our sort of proxy in the movie. The, the audience is proxy. And everything we do, everything I do as a composer, is to strengthen the audience's connection with that character. In The Force Awakens, arguably that would be Rey. In Star Wars from 1977, that's arguably Luke Skywalker. Um, perhaps one of the challenges that audiences have with a film like Phantom Menace is, is that, um, it's not quite so clear who that character is for us. Uh, in The Lord of the Rings, even though there's a panoply of characters, Frodo is probably our way into that movie. Or maybe Sam. No, I think that's, yeah, I think that's pretty clear. You know, I, I've heard in, um, narrative theory that that, what you're talking about, they call the main character. Right. And usually, usually the main character is the protagonist, but it's not always. So, um, in, in stories like, uh, Sherlock Holmes, Watson is the main character, but the protagonist is Sherlock. Right. So we do have a, like, um, sometimes that breaks off. So if you, like, you were doing, if you were doing like a Sherlock Holmes, do you think you would take it from Holmes or from like the main character, like Watson? Yeah, that's an interesting point of view, uh, or interesting question about point of view. Um, because the other, I guess, another aspect to writing a score is whether or not the music is omniscient or the music is, let's, let's say reactive. Mm-hmm. So, um, I tend, I think, to start from a perspective of reactive so that if the scene is making me feel sad, 
then I'm going to write sad music. So I'm reacting to the film and then writing music that I hope conveys my emotional reaction to that film. Yeah, I think it makes sense. So like if 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 uh the if you want if someone were lying, let's say someone was being devious, but the person listening, the person on screen listening to it has no idea. A purely reactive thing would not the music wouldn't reveal anything about the deception. But if you wanted to be a little more omniscient about it, you could you know, kind of foreshadow the eventual uh, reveal that he's lying or whatever with some music, right? Right. A, a good example of, of of a form of this is in Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's a scene where Indiana Jones and Marion are on a boat, and it's after he's been through hell and back in terms of, you know, riding under a truck, escaping from the pit of the snakes and the blowing up the flying wing. And he's just, he's exhausted and he's beaten up and bruised and battered everywhere. And they, Marion is sort of trying to make him feel better and they're bickering. And the score, rather than playing up either the comedy of their bickering or the frustration of their bickering, goes in a totally different direction and plays the love theme straight. Hmm. And... And that's in that scene, I think the music is being omniscient rather than reactive because the reaction to that scene would be, oh, this is funny or boy, they don't really like each other. But the the music knows more than the scene is giving us. That's it. Yeah. It's playing the subtext, right? It's playing the subtext. Yeah, that's and, another way and, to put it. Yeah. You know, the yeah. characters. Yeah. yeah. Um, I tend to think of it, I guess, as omniscient in the sense that, you know, I know I'm above it looking into it. But yeah, subtext is absolutely another valid way to put that. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes you, one does things with music that make no sense, except on a purely almost emotional level that you can't explain. So, for example, when Darth Vader kills, spoiler alert, when Darth Vader kills Ben Kenobi in Star Wars 77, episode four, and Luke Skywalker is, no! And then he's, you know, emotionally distraught by this. You know, an intellectual decision would be to use Obi-Wan Kenobi's theme to play that moment. But instead, John Williams actually uses Princess Leia's theme. And he actually talks about this in the liner notes of the original album, that um, even though it was Ben Kenobi's death, Princess Leia's theme, from a musical point of view, had such sweep and sort of tragedy that could be pulled from it that it made more sense musically to go with that even if storytelling wise it wasn't exactly um appropriate i guess for lack of a better word intellectually yeah so my audience is gonna have to forgive a lot of star wars references because joe and i are both obsessed um <laughs> well and you know the but good, like um the good thing about using star wars is most people have seen it and it's it's and it's pretty straightforward. Yes, you know. Yes. Um, and I just I'm very familiar with the, that a lot of the work that was done in those movies. So yeah, I do apologize. Yeah, we'll no we'll we'll just rest we'll restrict our conversations. Uh, we won't talk as much about uh, experimental French film from the '60s. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so I'm thinking of like the scene where Luke sees the, he walks out on Tatooine and we see the two sons for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, now just, just riffing on what you're saying to me, Luke is depressed and wishing he were not there, but it's not depressing music. It's uplifting. 
right? That's like when we hear one of the main themes of the movie, right? Right. What's interesting is that the version in the film is not the first version John Williams wrote. He actually wrote an entirely different version, which you could hear on the uh, two-disc special edition soundtrack that came out in 97 when Lucas re-released the movies. Um, and John Williams' original approach to that theme was very dark. Uh, it was sort of based on the Das Ure, which is a sort of death theme. And in a lot of ways, it foreshadowed perhaps that, you know, Owen and Baru were going to die. And that was because his, his emotion in that scene is, I'm never getting off this planet. I'm stuck here forever. Right. And perhaps what John Williams was thinking was that the death of Owen and Baru, that will be the catalyst that will let him leave the planet. You know, that will cut all ties. And so perhaps Williams thought, I want to set that up in this scene. But... I don't know whose idea it was. I assume it was the director, George Lucas, uh, wanted a different emotional beat for that moment. And so instead, they use what in that film is considered Ben Kenobi's theme, but over the course of the saga became the Force theme, which is... And it does have an uplifting quality. Um, I... The other thing it has is a sort of a quality of looking back or, or nostalgia or history. You know, it sort of seems like a reflection of an earlier time. And in the bigger picture, perhaps maybe what Lucas was honing in on or, or focusing in on was that Ben Kenobi is as much the catalyst for Luke Skywalker leaving and going on this adventure as the death of his surrogate parents. And so using Ben Kenobi's theme there or the force theme strengthens that quality instead. I have so to, what do you mean? What do you mean by the music? The music is looking back. What does that mean? I know this is what, there are certain things about music that as much as I've studied music and, and have a sort of, uh, hobbyists love of psychology and psychiatry. Um, there are certain aspects of music that we still, or at least I sometimes feel like I'm at a loss to definitively articulate. But what I'll say is that this theme is played by the French horns. And there's... The, the use of the French horn to me has a certain distance to it, a certain grandeur. Uh, trumpets, I, I, trumpets to me have an immediate, a, a feeling more of immediacy unless they're treated in some, uh, sound design kind of way. So at the end of Star Wars, when the heroes are getting their medals, we've got. So that theme is being played by the trumpets, and it feels very immediate. It feels like it's happening right there. Um, the opening of the film. So it's played by the French horn earlier and the trumpets later. I mean, it's played by a variety of instruments throughout the course of the film. But yes, uh, in the at wow, the end okay. of the film, it's played by the trumpets. At that scene at the uh, at the crater where he's looking at the sunset, it's played by the French horns. Um, also, when 
Obi-Wan Kenobi pulls back, Ben Kenobi pulls back his, his hood as Luke wakes up for being attacked by the Sand People. We hear it there as well. And in that scene as well, it's played on the French horns. And yeah, between the choice of instrument, the tempo, which is slower, and then the, the third thing is the mode, which is the Dorian mode. Now, in Western music, a scale has 12 notes, or there are 12 notes in our palette for us to choose from, and they repeat over and over again from the bottom of a keyboard to the top. So that would be, and we have seven names for these notes, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And with, and we can pick from this palette of 12 notes, seven notes, and a variety of configurations. And each of those configurations is called a mode. And so the most straightforward mode is what we call the Ionian mode. These modes have Greek names, Ionian, uh, Dorian, uh, God, now I'm going to lose my brain. Lydian. Well, there's Lydian, Mixolydian, Locrian, Phrygian. Ion yeah, it's Ionian, Dorian. Uh, is it Aeolian? Nah. You know, I'm on the spot now and I'm having a brain fart, so forgive me. Um, but the, Ion okay. <laughs> the, the, the Ionian mode is... On a piano, that's the white keys. It's the C major scale. So a C major scale or any major scale is also could also be referred to as an Ionian mode. So it's a little confusing because in a, in a lot of ways, this is two different names for the same thing. Uh, the Dorian mode, which is what the force theme is in. That's a, this, this mode is a minor scale. And it's, it's minor because the, the third is flat. So one, two, three. If it's natural, we'll call it natural. Uh, that's a major. If it's if it's flatted, then it's minor. And you know, one of the cruxes of the psychology of music is major or minor, light or dark. And why we make this association is. I, I've never found a definitive explanation any more than I've found a definitive ex <laughs> definitive explanation for why the word murder means murder, you know, or... Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I, and and you're talking earlier about how the French horn is sort of like a wistful or something and you can't explain why. And you're completely forgiven for that. I mean, your job, your job as an artist is not to understand the cognitive science of why certain things make us feel this way, but just to know that they do. And, you know, that said, I'm, you know, letting you do much of the talking in this because um, this is about psychology of music, but the psycho the, the real um, science of the psychology of music is actually uh, not very well, it doesn't have answers to these things, you know? Like, the, the, the you know, it has been established empirically that minor keys sound a little sadder or more discordant somehow than major keys, uh, and the studies they've done, they've, they've done studies that show that when people are talking about sad subjects, if you look at the notes of the words they say, it actually reflects a minor key better than a major. Right. Um, but that doesn't really answer the question. 
Like, like what, you know, what is it about it? And, and I don't think we really know. I mean, there are certain things that we could hone in on. For example, this interval is a major interval. And that let's, let's just say that that's a zero point of emotion. Well, uh, on a scale of ecstasy to absolute misery, let's establish this as a sort of de facto median point. This is a smaller interval, i.e. the top note is getting lower while the bottom note is staying the same. So that's the original, now it's lower. One could argue that lower is a loss of energy or a loss of positivity, a movement down into a darker place. Uh, you know, when you go underground, you're literally going into the dark, whereas when you go up into the sky, you are closer to the sun. You know, you're closer to light. That's an interesting idea. You know, that that certainly would explain um, a change in uh, emotion when you go from my major to minor. Um, you know, maybe not so much... Like, if just hearing something that just begins and ends in a minor key is thinking of it as slightly sadder. Right. Uh, you know, are we, are we, do we have some major key in mind that we're comparing it to? Well, uh, what it may <laughs> you know, actually be, I mean, and what's, what's a, what's a shame is that we can't really have conversations with babies because it would be very interesting, not only in terms of music, because music is essentially a language. We, it's audio stimuli that creates a reaction in the same way that language does. So like, I found it fascinating, like Tolkien was a linguist and you know, the, yeah. the, the land of Mordor was so named because of the word, the, the emotional connection he felt between the word Mordor and murder, you know? Um, right. Right. So yeah. he was looking for things that create, you know, sounds that we could create in speech that elicited an emotional reaction. And so, uh, you know, the, the names and the nomenclature of the hobbits was very distinctive from the names and nomenclature of the elves or the orcs or, yes. you know. And in that way, he was looking for emotional reactions. You might, you might sort of make an analogy that modes are almost like those different cultures that Tolkien was creating. So back to the force theme, just to kind of make my point there. It's interesting that you give it, uh, you use the term uplifting because it's a minor mode. But due to the, to the, what you can do is with the notes available in that mode, you can then create chords. So our one, our one chord, which is our home base, if I'm in F, uh, Dorian, which is F minor. That is our home base and it's minor. However, and then we have the five chord, which is major. So I'm going from F minor to C seven, C, ma C, C major with the dominant seventh to F minor. But what's different is that in this mode is that the four chord is a major chord. So that quality of uplifting that you get from the force theme, I think, comes from the fact that the four chord is a major chord. So we're going from minor to major, and I'll demonstrate that. So we get that lift from minor, from darkness, 
to light. And that's probably what's giving you that quality. And perhaps it's that quality too that for me, and you know, the other thing is uh, going back to this sense of, of um, looking back or the, the sort of sense of a bygone age that I get from that theme, that may just as much be an association that was formed when I was a child seeing Star Wars for the first time. And knowing that that was right. Ben Kenobi's theme, and that he would, he's yeah. he is a sort of remnant from an older time. Yeah, and I and and also I, you know, I really don't know what I thought when I was five years old, sitting in the aisle watching Star Wars in 1977. Right. <laughs> but now, when I watch it, I know that theme so well that to me it reads as like this kid is destined. To change the universe like that, you know, because I know that the, the theme is so, the theme song is so uh, richly powerful and, and meaningful to me. Right. That, you know, even though he's just a nobody on a nobody planet, the fact that we're playing the force theme when he looks out into space where he dreams to go is is a is a for to me foreshadowing now that I know what that theme means. Right. I mean, to a certain degree, um, it's inevitable because uh if nothing, if he wasn't the character that these things were going to happen to, we wouldn't be watching a movie about him. Um, which I know is sort of meta and perhaps even like, yeah, no duh. Well, so I, yeah, but at that, I mean, at that point in the movie, we've seen more, like, we've seen a lot of Leia, you know, it's, it's right. interesting. Well, the, uh, one thing that's interesting to an, when one analyzes Star Wars is that it's an episodic story and it's not constructed in mm. the traditional way it's not your traditional three-act structure where you know we you know we meet the characters or we meet the protagonist and then he goes through a sort of typical hollywood or or more traditional storytelling narrative of progression what we have the first segment of the film our principal characters are really r2 and 3po and right. we don't even know C-3PO's name until, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes into the movie. Um, mm -hmm. we know we, we meet Princess Leia, but there's a quality of, you know, she's named in the opening crawl and we see her, but I don't know. For me, it's the character, our way into the movie we think is going to be these robots. That's true. That's true. And then it changes uh, about 15 minutes into the movie when we finally meet Luke. And so, uh, you know, the robots take us to Luke. Luke takes us to Ben Kenobi. Ben Kenobi takes us to Han Solo. Han Solo takes us to Princess Leia in person, you know, as where she joins the group. And then all of them together go to the Rebels and then blow up the Death Star. It's like a line that we follow. Yeah. And structurally, what's interesting, and this is a total sideline, but what's interesting structurally is that Lucas, <laughs> Lucas, um, made the structure of the prequels parallel to the structure of the original films. So that episode one is linear. Instead of two robots, it's two Jedi Knights. And they take us to the Queen rather than Luke. And then that takes us to Anakin instead of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Then that takes us to Coruscant and, you know, through to the end of the film. Uh, then episode uh, Empire Strikes Back. The characters start together, and then half of them go off on one trip while the other half go off on another, and then they meet at the end. Same thing with Empire Strikes Back. And then Return of the Jedi starts with the rescue of Han Solo, and then the big, you know, characters going off and doing their big thing for the sort of wrap-up, the final battle. 
episode three, it's the big rescue of the Chancellor, and then the characters go off, and it's the end of the Clone Wars and the wrap-up of that battle. So he, you know, people goof on him for saying, like, these movies should rhyme, as he said in one of the documentaries, but he really did build them structurally like that. What's interesting from a psychological psychological point of view of the music is that Williams did not really construct the scores for the prequels the same way he constructed the scores for the originals. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was, you know, the first film relies very much on thematic scoring and action sequences are scored very much with thematic material so that when Luke is zooming down the trench at the end of the film, we're hearing variations of all the themes in the film. Whereas, say, in the pod race in episode one, John Williams did not use Anakin's theme almost at all in the entire pod race. And I think if he had, mm. if he had scored that scene, if that scene had been in the first movie, it would have been scored as an almost theme in variations on Anakin's theme. And, yeah. you know, so from a psychological point of view, maybe it's that by the time they made episode one, which was sort of the fourth movie in terms of how they were made, John Williams felt like the audience knows the language now. So I don't need to sort of drill this into them when you're scoring a movie. Right. And it's, and it's, it's a movie that's either the first in a series or a standalone film. As I've said, music can relate to language. You're teaching the audience the language that you've created for this film. So in the case of Jack, mm-hmm. Jack mm-hmm. Reacher, I had to sort of teach the audience what was Jack Reacher's theme and what was the investigation theme and what, what would be Robert Duvall's theme. Whereas when I did Mission Impossible, I had the theme. It came, it was sort of a, it came with the film preloaded into the audience's mind so that when I could, I could hint at that theme from the very beginning without playing it and they would sort of understand, oh, he's hinting at the Mission Impossible theme. Yeah, I, I noticed how you did that. And uh, that's one of my favorite things about that soundtrack of yours. I think like when you start the soundtrack as you would hear it on a CD or something, you just start, isn't it where you just start with like a dun, dun? Yeah, well, I've got like the, dun, you know, the. Dun. Right, right. And you can say, and if you know the theme of Mission Impossible, you can, you can like sort of feel it coming and it builds up great anticipation. I think you did a great job with that. You have that. You know, there's. So, yeah, like you said, I was sort of hinting at it and then developing it. Yeah. You know, with the movie Jaws, Jaws, John Williams spends the first third of the movie really drilling at home that. Thank you. 
he really spends the first third of the movie drilling home that that is the shark theme. And when you hear that music, you should immediately think shark. Right. When he, when he scored Jaws 2, that theme had become like a cliche almost. I mean, it had become, it was so effective and so well known that the audience, he could, he didn't even have to give it to them for them to know, oh, oh, there's a shark. You know, he could just hint at it. And, you know, same thing with the Darth Vader theme. You know, he can hint at that and the audience will go, ah, ah, Darth Vader, you know. And when you say hint at it, what you mean is that you're playing like some notes from it, but leaving some out and the audience fills the and the rest in their mind. Is that what you're talking about? Well, for example, um, like the Darth Vader theme is... So if you have a... Um, you know, there's a, a bit, uh, it's, it goes. It's hard to play because it's these trumpets doing triplets, but it's. And those notes are the Darth Vader theme. Mm. But he's, he's hint, he's not playing it explicitly. I see. You know what I mean? He's he's doing a variation of it uh, that's reminiscent of it, and so the audience gets this 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 taste of it in the um, that famous duel of the fates. It's called. He's got one part where the trombones are going. I, I'm not going to be able to play both at once, but while the strings are going bum 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 bum, the the trombones are going. Wow. You know what I mean? But you don't really hear that necessarily uh, explicitly. You know what I mean? But it's there. Yeah, it's like a it's like a puzzle box. It's so it's so neat that and then and somebody like you who appreciates it can unpack it like that. And thanks for sharing it with us. <laughs> That's so neat. Well, you know, to me, I mean, look, there are a lot of people who. Everybody watches movies and television, and all of us react to the music, at least subconsciously. Um, I've been reading a lot about computers and programming and retro computers and the history of computers. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, the Atari 2600, which was the first video game machine I ever used and probably really the first computing device I ever used, was very primitive and the only way to yeah. write software for it was to write it in what's called machine code. Yeah. And it, and what you're doing is you're writing commands at a level that is directly affecting the hardware. Mm -hmm. So you're writing and you're writing in essentially like bits and bytes of zeros and ones. And the commands that you are typing into the, to the, you know, into the program, the, the code that is being entered into the processor is directly from the programmer to the processor. Nowadays, when you write C++ or Python or whatever language you're using, even basic, you are typing in a sort of nomenclature. And then that, that, that language is fed through an interpreter or a compiler or whatever and converted into machine code. And to me, if you're watching a play or you're watching a film or you're reading a novel, the language is 
being translated by our brain, you know, into, quote, machine code that speaks to our hardware. The brain's machine code, yeah. Yeah, so the brain, so our, there's a conscious part of our brain that's essentially functioning like a compiler or an interpreter in a computer. Music, I think, for most people, and I'm talking now instrumental absolute music, lyrical content, let's put that to the side because that functions on a more conscious level. The, the actual sound, tonal quality of music and its emotional impact, I think bypasses most people's interpreter or compiler and is like machine code directly affecting the hardware. It's certainly different from verbal. It's certainly different from verbal, yeah. And yeah. I think that's really... It's great. You can you can affect their emotions without them being aware of it, without beating them overhead with it. Right. Uh, let me ask you a little. Could, would you be willing to talk a bit about a decision you made, say in um, uh, Mission Impossible or uh, one of your other films, where you had a creative decision to make, maybe that was difficult, and what you ended up going with and why, and and then we can play that music. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, for I mean, one example might be a film I did called The Way of the Gun. Where at the end of the film, it's a scene where my instinct had been to score it with fairly disturbing, relatively, well, certainly dark, relatively atonal music. Okay. Uh, this is for the end of the film. And the director, so I was surprised. He pushed me to write m music that was less unsettling and more of a resolution to the story. To me, my instinct had been that this is a story where the resolution is unsatisfying by construction mm -hmm. and that we want to we want to actually emphasize that. That was my instinct, whereas the instinct of the director was to try to give the film a sense of closure. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the music any longer that I I the, well. The, the, yeah, I don't have the music that I thought might work for that ending, although I have something similar to it. So, uh, let's listen to a little bit of, uh, your original vision for this scene. Okay, and now we're going to hear a bit of the music that actually ended up in the film. So we do hear how that resolves more. Yeah. I mean, 
again, the first piece of music is very much the kind of music I, I thought should be at the end of the film, but it isn't actually what we ended up using there. The second piece is what we ended up using there. Um, there were obviously moments, there were a lot of moments in Rogue, uh, yeah, Rogue Nation where I wrote different versions of music for, I probably wrote a different version of music for almost every scene. Um, the process of scoring with that director involved a lot of exploration. So do you find, do you find that different directors have different amount of interest and yeah. hands-on-ness with the, with the, uh, score? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that a film composer has to deal with in the job is what's called the temp score. And that is that when the editor and the director are putting the movie together, they often do it. You, uh, they often put music from other movies into the film as a temporary placeholder so that they can get a sense of what the movie feels like when will feel like when it's all done. Right. Cause without music, it's, it looks ridiculous. It can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, some movies, I mean, uh, some movies don't have any music at all. Like dog day afternoon has no music at all. And I wouldn't say that that film is ridiculous. Um, all of the stuff. Uh, sure, yeah. I, I'm not trying to, I'm, you know, all of the stuff on the island in Castaway, there's no music in that film until he gets off the island. Oh, wow. So music can be very powerful when it's all, also, it's, it's use or lack of use, you know, being dis, uh, discriminating about where you use music is often as important as the kind of music that you write. So, for example, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the music when um, the bad guy is going to burn Marion's face with the red-hot fire poker, the music is building and building. Indiana Jones shows up, whips the poker out of the guy's hand, and then the gunfight starts. And as soon as the bullets start flying, the music goes away. Um, okay. And, and it's just that's an interesting choice. I think today, if that film were made today, there would probably be music playing through that whole sequence. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, I just think there's a different sort of aesthetic to the way things are, you know, these things go in, in waves or cycles or movements or whatever you want to call it, uh, trends. And there's definitely more music in movies, generally more music in movies today than there was 40 years ago when Raiders came out. Um, Interesting. You know, Star Wars, the first Star Wars movie actually has the least music of all the Star Wars films. You know, uh, and it, wow. it became more music as every film got made, you know. <laughs> well, that's good for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> more work. Well, to a degree. I mean, to be fair, John Williams wrote quite a bit of music for The Empire Strikes Back that ended up not being used in the film. They played a lot of scenes that he scored. They ended up playing without any music at all. And... Oh, you know, I see. That's part of the gig, you know. You you write the music. I mean, the good news is you're writing music and recording it with an orchestra. There's that's pretty great, you know. So if it doesn't end up in the movie, you know, it still ends up on the soundtrack album. There's a lot of music on the soundtrack album to Rogue Nation that wasn't in the film, uh, because I just I liked it. So um, you use some odd, you use some like um, off kilter and odd metering in Rogue Nation, right? Do you want to talk about that? Sure. I mean. Again, uh, writing music for movies, my goal is to essentially get right at the audience's emotional reaction to the film. And I start with tempo, how fast the music is. 
I mean, I suppose in the big picture, I start with whether it's going to be major or minor in, a, in the most broad sense, happy or sad, light or okay. dark, positive or negative. But then when I actually start writing the music, tempo is the most important aspect to start with because that's going to control the audience's sort of um, physical reaction to what they're seeing, you know, how, how much energy they're going to get from the film. And in a lot of ways, storytelling, filmmaking, composing is about controlling the audience's energy. So there's a scene in Rogue Nation where Tom Cruise and Rebecca Ferguson are talking about running away. They're sitting at a little table in the middle of a crowded train station, and they're talking about running away from it all and just living together and leaving all of this spycraft and global globetrotting behind. And so that music is relatively slow and tender. Then there's them running across the roof of the Vienna Opera House and then, you know, rappelling down on the, on the flagpole rope. And that music is very fast. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why is obvious. One of those things is a life-threatening situation where I literally want the audience's heart beating. And the other is a much more thoughtful sort of pensive moment where I want the audience to sort of disengage from the sense of danger or sense of the imperative nature of the action sequences and have a thoughtful moment. And it's hard, it's sort of counterintuitive to be thoughtful and also in a state of panic, you know, a corollary to that is, is the, is the issue of meter. Now people, it's a delicate or it's a tricky thing to dif differentiate for non-musicians, but tempo and meter are two different things. Tempo is how fast or slow a piece is moving. Meter is how many beats or pulses are in each sort of cycle of music. Now, these cycles are called measures or bars. So a waltz is in three. Bum ba da da one two three bum 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 ba da dee one two three one two three doot right. Um, uh, uh, Mary had a little lamb is in four. One two three four. One two three four. One two three four. One two three four. One two three. Four, one, two, three. So, right. So that's in four. Now Mission Impossible's main theme is actually in five. So it's bum bum ba da one then four five one two three four five one two bum bum. Now the first two notes are syncopated, so they each get a beat and a half. And then the last two notes are one beat. So it's four beat four notes spread over five beats. Bum 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 bum. So the fact that that theme is in five four, which is an odd meter what that does, I think, is it throws the audience off balance. Mm -hmm. You can't do, you can't march to five beats. We only have, we have an even number, <laughs> we have an even number of legs. You can't march to an odd number of beats. Um, did, did you find it hard composing in, in five, uh, five, four meter? No, not particularly. Um, no, okay. The hard, it's actually, I think, harder for uh, musicians to sight read mm. odd meter music than it is for me to write it. Um, yeah, and it's rare, right? Like I, the, I, the only I'm not a musician, but I, I, I really love Wendy Carlos's Tron theme, and I think that has seven. The main theme has seven beats. Yeah, you know, I've, I haven't. Da 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 da
Actually, what it is is she's throwing in bars of six four in there, so it's like one na 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 na. So it's like that first phrase is six. It's a six bar, six beat bar. So the da 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 da. That's six beats, and then the bum 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 bum. That's eight beats. If you're counting at the tempo of ba ba da ba ba da ba 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 ba. So the fact that I count seven beats well, before the thing sort of repeats is well, sort of yeah. is coincidental. <laughs> Six plus eight is fourteen. Fourteen divided by two is seven. Oh, so interesting. Mathematically, so, but that's an odd. Me- it's whatever it is, though. It's an odd meter, right? Well, so right? for example, like the chase through Coruscant in Episode Two of a t- of Star Wars, where Obi Wan Kenobi's hanging onto that thing and they're chasing after Zam Wessel. Yeah, it's this. That's in five four. You know. Um, there's a bit where they're uh, escaping from Naboo in episode one, and that is, uh, I think, in 15-8. So it's like a bar of four and then a bar of seven-eight. So it's like... Lord help us. Yeah, it's like... Bum, da-ba-dum, da-ba-dum, bum, ba-ba-dum, ba-ba-dum, da-ba-dum, da-ba-dum, bum, ba-ba-dum, ba-dum, bum, ba-da-ba-dum, you know. But, okay, so you wouldn't want to use an odd meter for every chase scene, though, right? Like, how, as a composer, would you decide... Whether a chase scene, it's going to be high tempo, but what, what under what conditions would you add an odd meter and under what conditions would you make it a more traditional one? I guess it's how much do I want the audience to feel off balance in this action sequence. So mm-hmm. let's say that I was scoring, I could give you a hypothetical, like I'm scoring an action sequence for a Mission Impossible film where Tom Cruise is, let's say, running through... Uh, like a Middle Eastern sort of Arab Arab marketplace, right? Like a bazaar. And he's chasing after the bad guy. And there are all sorts of dangerous situations and near misses with cars and traffic. And he can just never get, he keeps stumbling and he can never really get any sure footing or really get a, a grip on this person. And so, yeah, I might use an odd meter there just to sort of help psychologically play up like this music is off balance and off kilter because he just cannot find, you know, a point of right. stability. Cha- it's like a chaotic, a chaotic environment as opposed to like a, like then, I guess in Mad Max when there's in Mad Max when there's a chase, it's sort of like a flat desert area. Well, like I was just about to say, a lot of chaos, right? So let's say he gets to a point where he's at the outskirts. He's chased this person to the outskirts of the city, and that person then gets on a motorcycle and takes off, and he looks around and he sees like. Uh, you know, like a, a rickety old car. So he jumps in the car and he takes off after the person. And it's like a car where when he's got the thing floored, it's barely fast enough. Well, then I might go into a, a straight rhythm. It might, the music would still be fast, but it might, might not be an odd meter now because he's in a car and it's a machine and he's now gaining on the person and he's got some stability now. It's a road. It's a straight freeway in the middle of nowhere. You know what I mean? So. Right. Uh, the danger would be different and what he's up against would be different, but he is no longer sort of tripping and stumbling his way through 
twisty alleys and back streets. He's now in a straightaway right. and chasing this person down. So that's a context in yeah. which, you know, going from a straight meter to an odd meter would be, or from an odd meter to a straight meter, excuse me, would be an effective um, contrast that the audience, even if they're not aware that that's what I'm doing, they would, they would subconsciously feel like, okay, something is straightened out here. Something has changed. Yeah. So one thing I've, I've wondered about is sexy music. <laughs> and the reason I bring it up, the reason I bring it up is that I, uh, in chatting with people, find people find very different music sexy. And I always thought that was really interesting. Um, I remember uh, my friend, uh, one friend of mine thought that Red Hot Chili Peppers was extremely sexy music. Okay. Uh, and then another one really thought that the Beastie Boys' License to Ill album was sexy. And I thought this was so strange because I never, I never got that feeling. And, and you're probably going to laugh, but I think like... Um, the soundtrack to, uh, uh, what's that Peter Gabriel? Um, passion. That's, that's that funny. Jesus movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Last Temptation yeah, of Christ. Passion. passion. That's so funny that you said that. I think that's actually a very sexy, a sexy bit of music. At the risk, <laughs> at the risk. <laughs> Do you have of, any opinions on this? Yeah, I mean, at the risk of being crude, are we talking about music in a film where we want the characters to sort of, we want to help get the characters to a place of sexual relation or are we talking about in real life the kind of music we might listen to if we were engaged in some activity if you have opinions on any of that i would love to hear anything you have <laughs> well i could you know i think that um there are a number of ways you could look at it obviously like the movie 10 which was like a sex comedy with bo derrick that used the piece bolero by ravel in, in a very sexual way and i suppose you might argue well and I don't want to, you know, the music has a repetitive nature, a rhythm to it, which might be considered mm -hmm. a, a, a central part of sexuality. And it builds to a climax and then we, uh, right. and, then, and then resolves. Um, the, the rhythm of the, I mean, Peter Gabriel is a very rhythmic composer, rhythmic musician, rhythmic songwriter. So, I mean, I think that the rhythmic quality of his music can be, um, evocative uh i'm less personally um struck that way by rock music or pop music in general um in terms of beastie boys or uh the other one that you mentioned chili I'm peppers, chili peppers, chili peppers. i mean i guess i would say that you know there was that madonna song called justify my love where she was like whispering dirty things in your ear i mean that's kind of sexual but in a different i mean that's in a very blatant i think kind of well then we got the yeah we got lyrics there i mean that's deliberately I but del like but no but i would say even just the sound it's almost like an is it asmr or amr whatever those four letters right. are it's almost a quality <laughs> right, right. of that where they she's whispering in a very sexual way in your ear as you if you listen to that song on especially like on headphones or something like that that has a very provocative quality uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, of course, also the lyrical contents, you know, I mean, Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, I know, I know a woman or two who, you know, finds the music of Led Zeppelin, like very stimulating in that way. Yeah. And, um, you know, probably there's some element, I mean, look, this is all tied into deep psychological traits of the listener. You know, and in the same way mm -hmm. that some people think, you know, 
like blondes or brunettes or whatever. You know what I mean? Or some women find a really muscular man attractive, where some women like the no, dad bod. People you know, are different. So, so the music, musically speaking, I think sexu- the sexuality of music is almost different to a person. It's not necessarily universal. How do film composers tend to like build up the sex sexuality and sexiness of a scene? Well, I think probably I think there are two different kinds of films that that have sexual content that composers are forced to deal with. One is like a narrative film and the other is a pornographic film. And in pornography, it's very almost comical. You know, the the wah-wah guitar and the the sort of funky you know, well, what, well, for what, 1970s porn, yeah. Right. I mean, well, certainly, I mean, in the modern age, it's become more of a documentary style where there is no music, but, you know, or at least that's what I've been told. Uh, in a film, generally, in a narrative film, sexual content is at least ostensibly present to, to develop character and forward the plot and not simply a sort mm. of, sort of rest stop on the way where we have a sort of purely, um, physical, yeah. physical experience. You know what it is? It's subtext. P- pornography doesn't really have a subtext. Right. Film, a film, a narrative film has a subtext. And in a sexual scene, I think you try to score the subtext. So you look at what is the subtext of the scene. So like there's a scene, like the movie Somewhere in Time, when Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour's characters finally consummate their relationship, the music is very romantic and loving. Now, obviously, it's not a blatant pornographic sex scene. It's a romantic love mm-hmm. scene. But the implication is ab- right. absolute that they are consummating their relationship. I mean, I'm trying to think of um, other movies you know, uh, again, back to Blake Edwards' movie 10, that movie's a comedy. So the use of Bolero is arguably even funny, you know. Um, Hitchcock is a great, or, or De Palma. Those are two directors who used sexuality in the films to build tension. And I think to, yeah, yeah. you know, tantalize the audience with the risk of the taboo. And very often the music in, in those scenes wa- played up maybe even a sense of, danger you know the the music in vertigo is not necessarily overtly romantic even though there's a certain but there is definitely a sexual quality to jimmy stewart and his obsession with the woman yeah um uh, let's you mentioned music being funny um mm-hmm. you know when you talk when you talked earlier about you know tempo like fast tempo is high energy you know, this relates to psychology theories of emotion, where one of the main ways we think about emotion is in terms of the uh, arousal, we call it, which is sort of the energy, and then the the valence, which is whether it's positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got all these other funny things that I hear you, you know, in talking with you over the years. Music can be tender, or it can call back to the past, or you know, all these things that we don't really have great descriptions for in psychology. And humor is one of those. So, can you talk to me a bit about what what makes music funny? Sure. I mean, I guess at the base level, I at the, the entryway to this conversation, this part of the conversation is what makes anything funny. And I mm-hmm. think humor, the, 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 the definition, one definition that I heard that seems to be applicable to anything that's funny is that it's unexpected. So that we are sort of set up there's the setup, which which um, 
primes us with a sense of expectation for what the punchline is going to be. And then there's the punchline, which is not what we were expecting. And then we laugh at that. So with yep. music, um, I guess I, even if I'm not, my instinct is to, I think, do the unexpected, uh, or perhaps to go in a, to set one thing up and then go in a different direction. Now, maybe, you know, a savvy audience will, ex will see that coming the same way a savvy audience can see the punchline to a joke coming, even if they don't know, yeah, what, yeah, even right. if they don't know what the punchline is going to be. But for, so, and there right. are a number of ways you can do that. One is, uh, you know, a very effective thing could be using contrasts in range. So you can have a very high instrument and a very low instrument playing the same melody together. So there's a score that John Williams made for a, uh, a film based on Faulkner's story, The Reavers. And he's got a scene where these guys are riding in this like very old, like rickety jalopy. And he's got a tuba and an oboe playing a theme that's like... You know, and just that contrast is kind of funny, you know? Uh, yeah. That's just funny, as opposed to... Yeah, it sounds like a villain in a melodrama. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but once you once you spread those notes out by a couple of octaves, it starts to become. I mean, is that just because we rarely we rarely people rarely compose music with that range in there? Is that why it's unexpected? Or? Yeah, I think our instinct is that these things are going to be close together. They're going to be either in unison or or maybe an octave apart. So you know, um, I suppose. You know, music, one school of thought says that all music really started out as singing and everything evolved from singing, that the first thing we did was sing. And then those who couldn't sing, you know, maybe they found a rock or a, or a, a you know, a gourd that they could hit with a stick to make percussion. And then somebody figured out, oh, well, you know, you could take this this, you know, this string or of some kind of this cat gut or whatever and pluck it and it could make a note. And then if you moved your finger, the note changed. And so, you know, instrumentation developed as a result of trying to emulate singing. And mm -hmm. that as a result, unison, singing in unison is sort of considered the, the de, de facto standard. And so de deviating right. from that by spreading your notes out by several octaves is creates a contrast that we find funny, you know? And is, is it, does that also work with, like, input putting in large intervals? Yeah, let me just say, uh, there. Uh, even if it's not funny, it can seem odd. You know what I mean? So if you're, yeah. if you're writing music, let's say you're writing music where, like, there's a mystic who starts talking about something mysterious. You might go... You might go like, right? Now, that's not funny, but it's odd and unsettling. And 
that again, mm-hmm. that contrast of high and low may create in us a, just a sense something's off here. You know, now I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were asking me another question. Yeah, uh, and I might, this might just be completely off, but I had something in my head that using large intervals between notes and a melody is also funny. Is that true? It can be. I mean, I think, again, it's about expectation. I mean, I do not think that large intervals are inherently funny. No. So, like, this melody, (laughs) I'm not trying, you know, like, that melody, that octave, I don't think that's funny. Mm. Um, that's a, a leap of a seventh. I don't think that's funny or, you know, I mean, that leap is actually an octave and another note moon river. I don't think that's necessarily mm-hmm. I think no, that's a good point. I think probably what's for me what's funny I think is when a melody doesn't where either it feels like it's outside of the traditional seven modes where there's a lot of chromaticism. Chromaticism is when two notes mm-hmm. are adjacent. Right? Mm-hmm. Um when you start using chromatic notes I think that's when things get funny. Right, um, right, because it's not in one of the keys or modes that we're used and, to hearing. And again, it's sort of you know our expectation is that music is going to go. That's sort of linear and from a mode. But if I start going, you know, um, um, right. And what I did there is I played it in octaves, but I also had one. I had the left hand one half step lower at the octave than the right hand, and it creates chromatic intervals. Now, I mean, that's just about as... No, it sounds fun. It does. It sounds fun. Yeah, it's a blunt kind of humor. Now, another (laughs) way you can be humorous in a film is to to be ridiculous one way or the other. So, for example, the airplane movies, one thing that makes those movies really funny is that in a lot of ways the films are not trying to be funny. So they play it straight. They play it straight. And Elmer Bernstein plays it straight with the music through the whole film. So that if you were to listen to the album, you would think this film, this music is written for a real thriller about people, you know, in danger on an airplane. What makes the movie funny is the contrast between the approach, the serious approach of the music and the fact that like Leslie Nielsen is delivering this dialogue in a very serious way, but the actual content is ridiculous. Right. Let's talk about a famous theme. Everybody knows the Simpsons theme. Yes. Uh, You got some thoughts about that, right? Yeah, I mean, again, like a bum 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 bum. So, like, that's a theme that I think the the contour of that melody, the if you were, you know, the if you were to take those notes, write them on a musical staff, and then connect the dots, right? It would make a sort of funny looking bum 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 that's just a weirdly shaped melody as opposed to and that 
off that off kilter quality of it, I think we interpret as funny. You know, there's not necessarily anything un- inherently funny about going Baba Labu, right? But that's a funny sound. If you go to a little kid and go, "Hey, Baba Labu," they're gonna laugh. You know what I mean? Now, I don't yeah. know if that I don't know if that's yeah. cult- I don't know if that's a cultural imprint that we get as children that develops through our life. But for but in the same way, the that Simpsons thing is funny. And then another aspect to it is the rhythm, which is that it's you know. You know, it's that is unexpected. Um, and it's also, mm, okay. it's, it, again, it's off kilter. It's bum, 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 bum. If you try to, if it's like the, the notes are syncopated, so they're off the beat. Bum, 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 bum. And the last note is. The last note is the and of a beat. It's, it's not landing on a beat. It's actually landing half a, half a beat early. And again, these, these, those factors all combine to create something that we then go, that's funny. That tells us that this yeah. show, The Simpsons is funny. A good, uh, I think a very fascinating cue to study. If a, if a musician or a psycho, uh, uh, or someone who's interested in the psychology of music would get a lot out of looking at, a cue, it's in the first Raiders movie, it's in Raiders of Lost Ark, and it's the scene where Indiana Jones, he's gotten out of that temple with the golden idol, and then Belloc, the Frenchman, takes it away. And there's this tribe of mm-hmm. indigenous people that uh, Belloc has conscripted as his little army, and they're all pointing their arrows at Indiana Jones, and they're distracted when Belloc holds up the idol, and Indiana Jones uses that moment to get away. And he's running through the jungle, uh, and then he swings across a vine, lands in the water, they gets on the plane and they fly away. And in almost every way, the film has been set up so that Indiana Jones is an expert. He's known that like, if you, you stay out of the light or those spikes are going to kill you, you don't step on those certain tiles or you're going to get stabbed with this um, shot with this poisonous arrow. You know, there's all these, you know, he hears the gun cock and he whips the gun out of that guy's hand. There are all these things that set up that Indiana Jones is like a, a really tough guy and he, and very, you know, very together and knowledgeable and smart. And then during this getaway, all of that is sort of turned on its head. And it's, and it's very much a comical kind of getaway. Now, first and foremost, yeah. it's, a, it's a chase. So the tempo is fast. Boom, 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 right? Yeah. The tempo's fast. So it gets our heart beating. But it's, uh, Indiana Jones is running through the jungle and he's, uh, it's not a straightaway. It's like he's got to avoid branches and trees and the, and so John Williams chooses to use plucked strings, also called pizzicato. And the orchestra is going Now there's no clear sense of where the beat is. The tempo is clear. And he's also Yeah, right. He's changing meter so that the music might be going You know. So sometimes it feels like maybe it's in four, and sometimes it feels like it's in three. On top of that, he's got this clarinet. Way at the top of its range, going, and it's funny. And you combine that with the image we get of Indiana Jones. There's one shot where the camera's way far away, but it's zoomed way in. And what that does is that flattens our perspective, visual perspective, so that we can't tell the relative distance of things. And we see Indiana Jones come over the top of the hill, 
And then behind him is this wall of, in, of indigenous people chasing him through the, through the jungle. And then he's yelling at his pilot, start the plane! And the pilot's fishing, and he doesn't want to let go. Every beat of this sequence is the unexpected and sort of played for a laugh. The pilot doesn't want to let go of the right. fishing pole. Then he lets go of it. Then Indiana Jones, you think it's going to be this heroic moment where he swings on the vine and lands on the plane and they take off, but he doesn't. He misses and lands in the water. Then he has to swim through the water to get on the plane. And then he's climbing on the plane as the plane takes off. You know, it's all these beats where instead of being sort of the suave James Bond kind of hero who's in charge of every scene or every aspect of the scene, he's struggling just to get make it out alive in a funny way. And that cue is pretty funny. And then, and then when he finally does get away, there's a true moment of heroic music. Then as they're in the plane, it gets sort of comical again, because there's a snake in the plane and Indiana Jones is terrified of snakes, which again, wait, this guy who just did this crazy thing and that they were covered in tarantulas and he didn't blink, but now he's afraid of a snake, you know? Right, right. That whole sequence is, that's a textbook example of how to, I think, effectively score a comic sequence without being without being silly or without being ridiculous or, you know, and I mean those two words in the pejorative sense there. Yes. And and this is all very well established. Everything you're saying about humor uh, and, and at least laughter has been uh, very well studied by uh, psychology. They um, and the unexpected is absolutely key to it, which explains why. Oh, also the other the other theory is um, that that things that is also unexpected, but things that appear dangerous at first that actually aren't that provokes a laugh too. That's why people laugh on roller coasters and stuff, mm. um, or when they when they see somebody like if I ran into you in a grocery store in Florida. I very well might laugh, not because it's funny, but just because it's it's completely out of context. But right. they've done um, they've done studies where they have people lift like three boxes in a row, and the first two are light and the third is heavy, and and people laugh right when they lift the third box, you know. And it's, you know what's what's the joke? Like it's there's no they this is <laughs> they distill yeah. it down to its, its yeah. bare essence of unexpectedness, and people will laugh. So yeah. All right, Joe, this has been so, so cool. And um, where can people uh, learn more about you? Well, uh, you know, I think most people today subscribe to one of the music services, whether it's Apple Music or Amazon or Spotify or whatever. And I've got albums on all of those services that people can listen to. I have a brand new release called Unbalanced Scales, which is some music I recorded actually before the pandemic, but it took a while to get to the music services. And that's eight different pieces of music all in odd meters. So if you're interested in some of what we oh. talk, talked about, about odd meters, that might be something interesting for your listeners. Obviously, you know, Mission Impossible, Jack Reacher, The Way of the Gun. Um, I have a website, but it's actually un being renovated right now, so there's nothing there, and you know, Wikipedia and stuff like that. <laughs> and I'm by not the time you listen to this, it might be renovated. That's true. That's true. But I, you know, and then I'm I'm lurking around <laughs> on some social media, but I I'm not so much of a social media person anymore. Uh, the toxicity of the community can be a bit overwhelming. So yeah, I think yeah, go to one of the yeah. music services and look me up. It's K R A E M E R and. Check out my yep, music. Joe Kramer. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Joe. This has been so insightful, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. 
Minding the Brain is gratefully sponsored by Carleton University's Faculty of Science. If you find this show valuable and you want to support Minding the Brain, consider leaving us a review or rating on your podcast app of choice. Leaving a review or rating increases our visibility and helps new listeners discover the show. If you want to connect with Minding the Brain on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Minding the Brain. You can also find more episodes and show notes at our website, mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Thank you for listening to Minding the Brain.